Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst Thomas Patrick Lavin. I've known Dr. Lavin for some time now, having attended many of the presentations he's given with his wife, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Hare Lavin, at the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, just north of Chicago, as well as having engaged in many private conversations throughout the years. A self-described Southside Irish Catholic, he went on to obtain his postgraduate education overseas, having attended the University of Innsbruck in Austria, where he received PhDs in both clinical psychology and moral theology, and a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. He served as the chief clinical psychologist for the United States Army from 1977 to 1981 and has established 11 drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers throughout Europe. He is a founding member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, and his area of clinical expertise is the movement from religion to spirituality in a personal and developmental context. He has lectured on Jung's work for over four decades, and currently maintains a private practice in Wilmette, Illinois. This talk was recorded on April 27, 2016, through the magic of Skype. You know, a good way of starting, it might well be, uh, an article that appeared in the New York Times on the 29th of February this year, by Roger Cohen, and the title of the article, it's an op-ed, is Trump's Il Duce Routine. And the, the first paragraph of the article, Europe, the soil on which fascism took root, is watching the rise of Donald Trump with dismay. Contempt for the excesses of America is a European reflex. But when the United States seems tempted by a latter-day Mussolini, smugness in London, Paris, and Berlin gives way to alarm. Europe knows that democracies can collapse. Okay, end of quote. You know, there's a, a fear in Europe about Trump that we don't have in America. Yes. Yet. Okay. And it's basically saying, oh my God, here we go again. Here, not just that, that Trump has quoted Mussolini, which he has. It's better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. Okay, that's that's a quote from Mussolini that Trump used, okay? But it's looking at the violence in Trump's language. It's woven into the language, okay? Punching a protester in the face, okay? The, the macho mockery of women, anti-Muslim anti-Mexican tirades, okay? And so to say, whoa, wait a second. Wait a second, haven't we heard this before? 
is this really the the beast raising his head again? Well, what beast are we talking about? Right. You know, well, uh, the realization that once upon a time, you know, there was someone who complained and yelled, you know, and, you know, the country was very sad and depressed and people were angry and frustrated because they knew they'd been lied to. They realized that some people in their military had been sent to countries to which they did not belong and some people had died there. People felt lost. They did not feel they belonged anymore. That's a big word. They belonged anymore. They no longer felt they were a part of something bigger. And they realized that their pride and trust were gone. Then a man came out of nowhere. He'd never served in elected office. He said he would make the country great again. Huge crowds came to hear the man speak of renewed greatness. He would employ the unemployed. He would build new roads and repair roads that were impassable. People who did not belong were expelled, and he would build walls to keep the undesirables out of their country. People had a strong need to feel good about themselves again, and he promised that he will, would help them regain their pride. The man's name was Adolf Hitler, nicknamed Der Führer, the leader. And his name was on everyone's lips. Today in America, we have many people who feel ashamed and powerless. Our cultural consciousness seems to be sagging. Are we all suffering from a cultural inferiority complex? To avoid the tragic mistakes of Germany in the 1930s, we will do well to go back to the complex theories of C.G. Jung and look at archetypal patterns. The Trump name is on everybody's lips because he's touched a cultural complex. Sometimes we have complexes. Sometimes complexes possess us. Yes. So what I'm talking about, you know, is the Trump phenomena which possesses our country. I'm not talking about Donald Trump the person or his psychological complexes. But rather what needs to be done is an examination of the cultural complex of America today. You know, that's really what we have to, in other words, look at ourselves. Yes. You know, don't get lost in Trump and, oh, well, Trump's another Hitler. Well, you know, that's not really important. What's important is that there's hope. We don't have to have another world war. It's not we're, but we're on the brink of it. Brink of it. Yes. You know, and there's a wonderful poem by Seamus Heaney called "The Cure at Troy." Short poem. History says 
don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the long-for tidal wave, the tidal wave of justice can rise up. And hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change. On the far side of revenge, believe that a farther shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. I think that's a terrific poem. And it, it really says, you know, history says don't hope. There's no hope. Right. This is this is gonna happen again. There's no hope. We just have to every now and then bring up the god of war and have revenge. Ah, uh, right. Okay. I mean, you knocked down the World Trade Center, that symbol of our power. Oh, we're going to get you. Yeah. Don't you dare. We're going to get you. You know, and, and just to realize that we're more than revenge. Hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. So we're in a sea change. Very important realization. What's a sea change? Well, there are other ways of talking about it. Uh, but a sea change basically is a change in values. Or what Karen Armstrong uh, talks about as an axial age. And she borrows that term from the German philosopher Karl Jaspers. Okay, called this period, what, what period? The period between 800 and 200 BCE. All right, that 600 year period was pivotal in the spiritual development of humankind. Why? What happened? During these 200 years, or 600 years, I'm sorry, during these 600 years, uh, new religion and philosophical systems emerged. Confucianism and Taoism in China, Buddhism and Hinduism in India, monotheism in the Middle East. Okay, this is axial. Uh, the world changing on an axis in terms of what motivates it to continue on. Oh, okay. And that's where we are today. Really? We are in an axial age. You know, and when will it end? Mm. Oh, about 500 years from now. So we don't even know it. We're in this and we don't even know it. Few do. Few know it. Some know it. You know, that we are, there's a book called Thriving in the Cross Current. And the author is Jim Kenney, K-E-N-N-E-Y. And basically he says, you know, we're in a period of transition. That's what an axial age is. Okay. Okay? Where old values that are on top go down. 
and new values that are on the bottom rise up. And there comes a time when the movement of down of old values okay, into the unconscious and the movement of new values from the unconscious cross. And that's, that's a time of turbulence. You've got old wave running into new wave. And that's kind of where we are. You know, we're, we're not completely into the new, and we're not completely finished with the old. You know, patriarchy is still alive. Yes. Okay? It's not, it's, we don't have equality. And we still have patriarchy. Not all of it is terrible. You know, but we have to realize that we have to do a cultural critique of the patriarchal system we're in. You know, and that's where Jung comes in. Okay. Okay, because Jung realized himself that he could no longer be the hero warrior. He could no longer be Siegfried. Okay, the dragon slayer. Yes. Now, that's what was going on in Germany at that time. Okay, where you'd lost, uh, I would say, the, the monarchy had lost its position. And there you are. You can tell what a country is by its king or queen. And that's where it is. That's where we are. Okay. That you needed something external. And you need a structured external form, like a monarchy, mm-hmm. to express the yearnings and hope of the soul. Okay. So who carries our soul yearnings and hopes? The king, the queen, the royal family. Oh, my God, they're not here anymore. Mm. Ooh. You know, we've lost the magic. Yeah. Now, I don't know how many years ago, I wrote my three kids. And I said, this is the 50th anniversary of, actually it was 2011, 50th anniversary of... John F. Kennedy taking the oath of office in Washington. Mm-hmm. January 21st, 1961. And, of course, the great quote, whether it was Theodore Sorensen or, or Kennedy himself, don't ask what your country will do for you. Ask rather what you can do for your country. All right, that was the beginning of Camelot. Yeah. That was the beginning. Those were the marching orders. That was the beginning of the Peace Corps. Okay. Don't ask what you can do for your country or what your country will do for you. Rather, what can you do? Oh, wow. Then he was shot. Okay. Then Camelot got shot. And I don't think we've had magic since. Right. 
I don't think that we've had magic since that time. Now, Jung realized in 1939 that Europe was on thin ice. You know, he lectured to the uh, London pastoral group and he talked to them about the fact that there was no symbolic life anymore. They lost the magic, you know, and basically, you know, basically what he said was, uh, you know, they all want a war. Now, this is in, in volume 18 of the collected works. The volume is called The Symbolic Life. Jung's monograph is called The Symbolic Life. And where people will find it is paragraph 627 in volume 18 of the collected works. And I'm, I'm going to read it. Now we have no symbolic life. And we're all badly in need of the symbolic life. Only the symbolic life can express the need of the soul, the daily need of the soul, mind you. And because people have no such thing, they can never step out of this mill, this awful, grinding, banal life, in which they are, quote, nothing but, close quotes. In ritual, they are near the Godhead. They are even divine. Okay, but do we do it now? Do we do it? Where do we know that we do it? Nowhere. Everything is banal. Everything is nothing but. And that is the reason why people are neurotic. They are simply sick of the whole thing, sick of the banal life. And therefore, they want sensation. They even want a war. They all want a war. They are all glad when there's a war. They say, thank God. Now something is going to happen. Something bigger than themselves. These things go pretty deep. And no wonder people get neurotic. Life is too rational. There's no symbolic existence in which I, I am something else, in which I am fulfilling my role, my role as one of the actors in the divine drama of life. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So he, I mean, you know, the whole Jung realizes, he gives this talk, you know, and... He is talking mostly to clergy persons. So he gives the talk at the pastoral, the Guild of Pastoral Psychology in London on 5 April 1939. Well, six months later, you know, on 1 September 1939, Hitler invades Poland. He knew. Mm-hmm. People want war. They all want war. Why? 
because there's a feeling of loss. There is a structure that used to be there, and it's not there anymore. Okay, well, well, then, then what do we do? And all of a sudden, somebody comes up and says, I'll make you great again. You know, I can, I can bring Camelot back. You'll see what happens. People say, what? Well, well you'll see. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you. You know, it's coming. Wow. Really? Really? Yeah, really. Okay. And so, then you read uh, April 25th, Time Magazine. Okay, so two days ago. And it says in Time Magazine, you know, there can be mobs and there could be violence at the Republican convention in, in July. No. Yep. Yep. There could be violence. Not saying we want violence, but, you know, it could happen. People are angry. Right. People are disturbed. And, you know, there could be a riot or two. What's that? Well, hey, I warned you. I warned you. Mm -hmm. It could happen. What could happen? Well, people get angry, they start punching people. Yeah. Why? Because they don't feel heard. They feel they're not part of something bigger. And if people try to interrupt my nomination, there's going to be punching and fighting around. Mm. That's all I'm telling you. Okay? Well, Jung experienced this whole thing in September of 1937. Okay, because in 1937, in September, Jung was in Berlin. <laughs> Mussolini was in Berlin at the same time Jung was. Okay. Okay, and there was a parade with weapons, and Il Duce and Der Führer marched along, and Jung was right at the barricade. And he and Hitler met eye to eye. Wow. You know, one split second. Mm. And then Hitler continued to march on. Jung shook involuntarily mm. a whole deep fear came over Jung. And he shook. And then he turned to C.A. Meyer, who told me the story, who was his uh, second in command, his lieutenant. It was C.A. Meyer that founded the Young Institute, not Young. And he turned to Meyer and he said, Go to the main train station and get tickets for Zurich immediately. Mm. 
this man is possessed. He's psychotic. We've got to get the hell out of here. Meyer looked at him, and he realized that Jung was in a state of panic, and he didn't argue and say, why, you know, can't we wait till tomorrow? What <laughs> Meyer just, just took off, took off, and got the tickets, and they left for Zurich the next day. Oh, what happened to Jung, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember years ago, it was Christmas time. We were living in Nuremberg. We had a five-year-old and a four-year-old. And we took them at Christmas time to see Hansel and Gretel. Mm -hmm. But because I was too late, I got tickets up on the <laughs> upper balcony, mm -hmm. the last tickets, but I was glad to get them. And we watched the opera. And at the point, we were up so high that we could see off stage a bit. And all of a sudden, you know, here is the witch. And she's about to make her entrance. And my son, five-year-old son at the time, Tommy, sees the witch and he begins to shake. He's so afraid. And he screams out, Vorsicht, Vorsicht, die Hexe kommt. Careful, careful, the witch is coming. Mm. The whole opera house broke into laughter. And then the poor woman, <laughs> the poor actor, <laughs> had, to, had to come on stage. Vorsicht, <laughs> Vorsicht, die Hexe kommt. Okay, that same type of seizure mm. is something that happened to Jung in September of 1937. This Hitler is possessed. Okay, and so to understand what happened, Jung looked into the eyes of Hitler and he saw the eyes of a man possessed. Now, we got to go back just a bit to possession. Okay. Because to be possessed is normal. We're all possessed at one time or another. Really? Yeah. We get scared, mm -hmm. deeply, very scared. When we see physical violence right in front of us. Right. Whoa. Okay. We are scared. This punch, this slap, this shot puts us into a state of panic. Right. Now, that's the negative side. There's a positive side. When we are in love, we're possessed. Yes. I've often walked down the street before. The pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All of, at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. Mm. Oh, that towering feeling. Hello. Is that possession? You bet your sweet boopy you are possessed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have positive possessions. 
we have negative possessions. Okay. The name in Jungian psychology for possession, or we'll use the German word, seizure. Okay, that name is complex. If we are seized by something, by an emotion, positive, negative, good on your list of emotions. Okay, when we're really seized by an emotion, we're in a complex. Okay, I was bitten by a collie dog when I was five years old. When I was 10 years old, I was walking down the street and I saw a collie coming on the same side of the street. Mm. I immediately crossed the street and continued walking. What? Who crossed the street? Well, I crossed the street. Yeah, but wasn't it really your complex? Had it been, <laughs> had it been a schnauzer, had right. it been a greyhound, had it been, you know, a wolfhound even. But it was a collie. And in my memory went, click, collie, get away mm. now. Don't even think about it, okay? And you, we can go positive. You know, we don't decide we're going to love someone. We fall into it. Oh, she fell into love. She fell into love? She's a straight-A student. How could she fall into love? That's how love happens. Straight. <laughs> straight D student or straight A student. Right. <laughs> it happens the same. It just happens the same way. So what is this then? What is this? A image that is strongly sent, accentuated emotionally appears outside or inside. Okay? It appears. If you've got to have an image. But the image is not, the image alone is, is not, you know, is bland. But this is an emotion-laden image. Yes. Okay. There's a, if there's no emotion, there's no complex. But, no, it, it really is as simple as that. Now, Jung called his psychology complex psychology. That was Jung's original name. Right. For his psychology. It is still the best name for his psychology. I think so, too. Okay. So, um, about 1934, uh, Jung's assistant said, you know, people misunderstand. When you talk about complex psychology, they think you're talking about a Freudian Oedipal complex, and that's, you know, and you're not talking about that. Yes, said Jung. So, well, you, let's change it to what you're doing is talking about things that need to be analyzed. We'll call it analytical psychology. And that's how analytic, analytical psychology got its name. It was Tony Wolfe about 1934. Well, even that name is insufficient. It still should be complex psychology. But what happens 
in in deep, deep work is not analysis from the Greek and Elaine to take apart, mm-hmm. but what happens is symbolysis from symbolane, which means to bring things together. Oh, right. So that the symbol, you know, the process of being able to understand what symbols point to now is really at the core of Jung's work. It's not, let's take this apart, you know, and you either, you know, oral or anal or genital or something, but we'll put you in there somewhere. And, you know, that's what what your complex is. No, it's not. (laughs) You know, just, you know, keep your oral, anal, genital to yourself, you know. (laughs) Right. I uh, I don't want to be put into that that box, this Oedipal box. Okay. Yeah. Jung is saying complexes are complexes. They can be Oedipal complexes, but they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Now complexes can have a lot, but that is you know that is really core Jung. We're symbolists, if you will. Okay. A Jungian is a symbolist. It's looking for, you know, what's that pointing to? Mm. What is this? And what's this pointing to? And so Jung sees Uncle Adolf walking down the street with his buddy Il Duce. Mm -hmm. It scares him. And Jung says, what is this pointing to? He asks the symbolic question. He has just really felt a very deep emotion. Uh-oh, there's something more than just, you know, a paper hanger from Austria. You know, there's something more than somebody who starts riots in Munich beer halls. There's something more here. What is it? It's the eruption of a god. What god? Wotan. Who the hell is Wotan? He is the German god of war. Just as the Greeks had Ares, you know, the god of war, or Mar, the Romans had Mars. The Germans had Wotan. Scandinavians had Odin, Mm -hmm. for instance. Okay. So Jung, all of a sudden, sees this God. Not just a man go by, but someone who is seized. Someone who is possessed mm-hmm. by an archetype. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh my God. That's a, so if you've got a complex, it's a very core of every complex is an archetype, is a primal image. Okay? You see 
real warmth and compassion and caring. All of a sudden you see images of mother, your mother, somebody else's mother. You know, it's sort of, boom, there's breastfeeding going on. There's real warmth. Oh, my God. That infant and that mother are one. I see real compassion and boom, all of a sudden, thoughts of mother, mothering, close, close, tender relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. I see hatred. I'm going to see the God of war. Uh-oh. You know, this, the whole idea of being possessed. Sometimes we have complexes. Sometimes our complexes possess us. Okay? And this is the reality of the complex, not just personal. Okay. Cultures have complexes. No. Yep. Cultures are able to have feeling-toned images. Okay? They can be very positive or very negative. I'll give you an example. Okay. I am 100% Irish background. Yep. God help me. All right. <laughs> it makes a good storyteller out of me, but there you are. All right. I have never been able to spend more than five sessions with someone who has a very strong English accent. Ah, interesting. They just don't last. Ooh. Not that I'm trying to push them out the door, you know, but this is, I'm just saying, oh, Jesus, here we are. It's, <laughs> it's somebody with a strong English accent. And I'm going to have, in the, in the parlance, you know, a, a counter-transference complex. I hear the English accent and say, you know, I'll do what I can to help as long as they last. Generally, they don't last long. Okay, so tell us what is a counter-transference. Well, it's something deep inside of me, a complex in me, that gets touched by something a patient says in the session. The countertransference is experienced by the analyst. By the analyst. That just, yeah. Yeah, triggered by in, the analysis. In response to something said or written by the analyzant. There's a transference and there's a counter-transference. Something deep is touched in each, in every um, depth work. Mm -hmm. It's there. Well, sometimes I'm not aware of it. Good. You know, Jung, Jung said, you know, the sooner we can get through with this transference, counter-transference stuff, the better we are. Right. 
You know, and let's get down to what we have to do instead of the fact of, you know, you've got an English uh, <laughs> collective background and cultural complex. I've got an Irish complex. You know, we can get through that. We can do some neat work together. Mm-hmm. But some people can't. Can't stay. Can't hang in there. Can't hang in there. No. Yeah. No. And it's, you know, again, it's not their fault. You know, someone uh, looks like my father. Okay. I don't feel good about my father at all. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm having real difficulty. This, you know, this therapist doesn't really, I don't know. He doesn't understand me. (laughs) He really, I'm trying, honest to God, I'm trying as best I can. This guy just doesn't get it. As a matter of fact, he can't get it. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. That's called a negative transference. Mm-hmm. It's as complex and as simple as that. Okay. Uh, someone walks into a 12-step group and says, you know, you people really have a big problem. She might as well not have come into the room. Mm -hmm. If the person walks in and says, we all share addictions. Let's talk about addictions. Yeah. We all share them. Instead of this you people bullshit. Right. Okay, because you lose them. Yeah, you lose them. You've got the complex. I don't have the complex. <laughs> right. Okay, so you know we've got Jung saying, "Uh oh, there's something deep going on in the advent of Hitler. I've got to find out what it is." And all of a sudden, he realizes, "Oh." It's the god of war. Mm. You know, this guy is violent. This guy is nasty. You know? This guy has only men walking with him. Of course, that would be the style in in 1937. Mm -hmm. This guy's a bully. You know, this guy is a con man or showman. This guy is a demagogue. But these are all words that were used on the cover of Time magazine on the 14th of March this year with Trump's picture. Yeah. Bully. Showman. Party crasher. Demagogue. And then there's one little box that doesn't have a check, and it says the 45th president of the United States. Oh, no. Oh, no. A con man? The president of the United States? A party crasher? Let's, you know. Someone that says, yeah, punch him in the mouth. That's scary. Especially, especially, when 
when we're dealing with a nuclear age. Yeah. Okay. And Jung says uh, this in, in volume 10. Jung used the mythology of Wotan to understand what was happening in Germany. He realized the god of war, you know, is all of a sudden rising up. And that this guy, Hitler, was possessed. Now, and the, the German words are interesting. Uh, I'm quoting from Deidre Baer's book, page 455. And it's the, the word ergreifen means to seize. And so you have the ergreifen height is the state of being seized, like my son was in the Nuremberg Opera, or that Jung was seized in Berlin meeting Hitler eye to eye, mm -hmm. possessed. Then you've got Ergreifer, and that's the one who seizes. Okay? And then finally, you have Ergriffener, that's one who is seized. Now, what happened with Hitler is that he not only seized Germany, okay, but he was also possessed by the god of war. So with our, you know, kind of Greek background, we're saying, oh, god of war, well, that's, you know, that's Mars. Or that's in Greek, that's that's Aries. And unless you're German, you don't think of Wotan. But if you're German, you do think of Wotan. So it's important to say that Jung was possessed by a man who was possessed. Mm. So uh, talking about our Griffin height, that's the state. Ergreifer, one who seizes, and in, in, in Hitler's case, it was he who seized the German people. Okay. But Ergreifener, or in English we'd say the passer voice, mm -hmm. is one who is seized. So Ergreifer is active voice. Ergreifener is, all right, so we see a seizure taking place, like an epileptic seizure, if you will. Right. Okay. Now, is this for good or for evil? We don't know. Hmm. We're not sure. Could be for good, could be for evil. You know, and that I think is is just when this thing comes up, we can't tell. Winston Churchill <clears throat> wrote in 1935, and I'm quoting, 
We cannot tell whether Hitler will be the man who will once again let loose upon the world another war in which civilization will irretrievably succumb, or whether he will go down in history as the man who restored honor and peace of mind to the great German nation. Wow. Winston Churchill, 1935. You're not sure, you know, this guy's got a power, he's got a charism, he's got a, you know, a magnanimity mm. about him. He's a showman. People come and listen to him. Yeah. Like they do Trump. Yeah. Okay, and we don't know, is it for woe, you know? Is this, go? how is this going to turn out, says Winston Churchill. Okay. When this happens, when the seizure happens, then we get mobs. We get people coming together in anger. We get mobs, and people are pissed. Okay, all sorts of instincts, not nice, come up in mobs. Mm. If I'm sitting at home alone, you know, watching the television or the birds in the backyard, those emotions don't come out. What do you mean? I mean, I mean in other words, I'm at home. I'm not angry. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, ready to punch somebody in the face. I see. That degree of anger doesn't happen on our back porch. At least it hasn't happened yet. Right. And I hope it never <laughs> right. does. But okay. there you are. Okay. So that, you know, when people are angry, you know, beyond normal, oh, then something's happened. We're in a complex. All of a sudden we can see We're different. A different part of us has come up. You know, things become dangerous. You know, and this these are all the things that Jung talks about in his monograph on Wotan. Things become dangerous. Collected Works 10. The title is Wotan, and it's paragraph 373. The ancient god of storm and frenzy, the long quiescent Wotan, can awake like an ancient volcano to new activity in a civilized country that had long supposed to have outgrown this God in the Middle Ages. We've seen him come to life in the German youth movement. Right at the beginning, the blood of several sheep was shed in honor of his resurrection. That means that uh, there was a ritual at the beginning of... um, some sessions of the German youth where they would kill a sheep. Right. Armed with rucksack and loot, blonde youths, and sometimes girls as well, 
were to be seen as restless wanderers on every road from North Cape to Sicily. Okay. Faithful votaries of a roving God. Later, towards the end of the Weimar Republic, the wandering role was taking was taken over by thousands of unemployed who were to be met with everywhere on their aimless journeys. But by 1933, they wandered no longer, but marched in their hundreds of thousands. The Hitler movement literally brought the whole of Germany to its feet, from five-year-olds to veterans, and produced the spectacle of a nation migrating from one place to another. Wotan, the wanderer, was on the move. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stop there. The restless wanderer. So Jung, all of a sudden, in Berlin, looks into Hitler's eyes and says, Oh, my God. But the God is Wotan. Now, it's very important to realize that Jung had to deal with his own hero, warrior. And Jung did that in 1913. Right. Jung had a dream of Siegfried. And Siegfried, okay, the dragon slayer, had to be killed. And Jung and what he says, a dark man, a savage, Jung and the savage kill Siegfried. Mm -hmm. Has to happen. Has to kill Siegfried. Oh, no. Why? Because if he doesn't kill Siegfried, he's going to really get caught up in all of the hero-warrior type of stuff that was happening in Germany at that time. Because this is the beginning of World War I. Mm-hmm. And Jung has the dream, and he is really... Uh, distraught. He is really bothered. And you can read this in uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Uh, my cover page, in the 170s, it's in the chapter Confrontation with the Unconscious. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Jung has this dream on the 18th of December, 1913. I was with an unknown brown-skinned man, a savage, in a lonely, rocky mountain landscape. It was before dawn. The eastern sky was already bright. Stars were fading. Then I heard Siegfried's horn sounding over the mountains, and I knew we had to kill him. We were armed with rifles and lay in wait for him on a narrow path over the rocks. Siegfried appears high on the crest of a mountain in the first ray of the rising sun. 
On a chariot made of the bones of the dead, he drove at furious speed down the precipitous slope. When he turned a corner, we shot him, and he plunged down, struck dead. Filled with disgust and remorse for having destroyed something so great and beautiful, I turned to flee, impelled by the fear that the murder might be discovered. But a tremendous downfall of rain began, and I knew it would wipe out all traces of the dead. I had accepted the danger of discovery, escaped the danger of discovery. Life could go on. But an unbearable feeling of guilt remained. All right. When he awoke, he's got the dream. He says, I've got to understand it. An inner voice says, you know, you must understand the dream. You must do so at once. He's trying to figure out the dream. The voice comes back again. If, if you do not understand the dream, you must shoot yourself. In the drawer of my night's table lay a loaded revolver. I became frightened. Then I began to realize Siegfried represents what the Germans want to achieve heroically, to impose their will, to have their way. Where there's a will, there's a way. I had wanted to do the same, but now that was no longer possible. The dream showed that the attitude embodied by Siegfried, the hero, no longer suited me. Mm. Therefore, it had to be killed. Okay. After the deed, I felt an overpowering compassion, as though I myself had been shot. A sign of my identity with Siegfried as well as of the grief a man feels when he's forced to sacrifice his ideal and his conscious attitudes. This identity and my heroic idealism had to be abandoned, for there are higher things than the ego's will, and to these one must bow. I'll stop reading Jung, but that's where it is. Confrontations with the unconscious. So Jung lets go. He kills Siegfried, much to his shame, because there are higher things than the ego's will. And we find at the bottom of the next page, he finds Philemon. He finds his own inner guru. He finds his own deep wisdom. But he has to let go of the warrior before he finds the wise old man. Mm. That's the price he has to pay. Yeah. You know? So, Jung knew already in 1913 that he had to deal with this German spirit of war, that he couldn't be a warrior hero. He had to be a, a hero of the spirit. Mm. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, and to his credit, he listened to it. You know, to his credit, he listened. You know, but you you find 
Jung then, later in 1945, Jung is sitting back and saying, oh my God, look at what happened. Look at what happened. You know, and he writes something 10 years later, 10 years after the after he writes Wotan, and he writes something that he calls After the Catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And that is in volume 10, right after, right behind the Wotan monograph. Mm-hmm. And he writes this, you know, and he... You know, he just said, I'm trying to understand this. You know, I mean, this is the first time since 1936 that the fate of Germany again drives me to take up my pen. Okay, so he wrote about Wotan. Um, And now he's saying, okay, let's look at what happened. What happened? And he talks about Hitler and Himmler and the Gestapo. He talks about the fact that his his books were tossed into the fire by the Gestapo in Paris. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this Wotan, they knew that Jung knew the God War had been unleashed. You know, and so the word was get his books, and when you <laughs> when you're burning books, burn Jung's. You know, because he's saying, "Hey, it's dangerous." Yeah, it's dangerous. Now, uh, quoting Jung, paragraph the same volume ten, paragraph four twenty. In other words, things only become dangerous when the pathological wire is taken seriously by a wider public. Like Faust, he's bound to make a pact with the devil and thus slips off the straight path. Okay, well, we're, we're dealing with, you know, a liar when we're dealing with Trump. You know, and again, back to Jung. One cannot help wondering if the evil spirit had not already taken possession of Hitler long before he seized power. Around 1936, many people in Germany were asking themselves the same question. They expe- expressed fears that the Fuhrer might fall a victim to evil influences. He dabbled too much in black magic. So there you are. The fear of the German people saying, whoa, he's not your normal type of politician. This guy is a little weird. Okay. Uh, He thinks he's powerful, more powerful than he is. And there's danger ahead. Why? Because a pathological liar is taken seriously by a wide public. Mm. And you can go right to volume 10 and go to paragraph 420 towards the end. 
And that's where you'll see that quote. I attended your talk at the C.G. Jung Center in Evanston, and um, your talk about what you're calling the Trump phenomena, and you opened with how our culture has a complex, our group has a complex. So how is that factoring into right now how we as a nation are responding to Donald Trump. And there is mixed reaction. I mean, he yesterday there was another Super Tuesday and he won. Yeah. But everybody that I know and what I see on Twitter and Facebook daily is this hatred for Trump. So what is happening here? He's, you know, that much hatred. Now he's in a cultural complex. I can be angry at you, Laura, but I don't hate you mm-hmm. unless I think you're possessed okay. by your own demon. That brings up hatred. And so it's, it's, it's saying, all right, just as you have personal complexes, okay, and I walk across the street when I see a collie, All right, well, my complex walks across the street. So a culture can have complexes where we are really very much afraid of our own shadow. Yeah. So, you know, basically the whole idea, the realization that we're no longer, America's no longer a superpower. America, we've lost that just as we've, you know, the Germans lost the Kaiser, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, all right. And, um, well, who's going to take his place? You know, Italy lost its many kings. Mm-hmm. Well, we need an Il Duce to take the place. We need something extraneous out there to take the place. But superpower, now that we have nuclear tools, we can't have a superpower again. We can't do Hiroshima and Nagasaki again. Why not? Because it will destroy the earth. Yeah. It will destroy us all. You know, humankind has never been in this position before where it has weapons that can destroy the face of the earth. Right. And here we are. And so, you know, to understand that it's not the tribe. You know, you need gods to protect the tribe, you know, but we're not tribal anymore. Mm. Oh, we're not national anymore. Oh, yeah. we're global. Mm-hmm. Global? Yes, global. You know, so that you can't use weapons when you understand that the whole world is indeed your area of growth, where you belong. Well, we don't belong anymore. No, not to a Kaiser, Mm. you know, not even to a party, 
You know, well, I'm a Democrat. Well, yes and no. You know, what Democrat? Yeah. Joe Biden? No problem. Okay, some other Democrats? I don't think so. Then the whole idea of, of realizing, you know, the, the whole trickster archetype. Part of being a politician is to know how to use that trickster. What do you mean by that? By that meaning, okay, this trickster, someone who is able to excite an audience, bring an audience to its feet, really be the charismatic figure. Okay. Part of being charismatic is being in touch with your own trickster. Okay, you're able to just <laughs> wow them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're in, in touch with that Hermes inside of yourself, the god of eloquence. Oh, yeah. And okay, to be, but Hermes can be for woe or for weal. You can be possessed by the god of eloquence. Like Hitler was possessed by Wotan. You know, so okay, we would to see, to begin to look archetypally really means that we can look at ourselves from a deeper place. Mm-hmm. Positive or negative? Or both? You know, and strive for balance in ourselves so that we're not losing the shadow. You know, therein is the problem that we get so hyped up on being so good that we turn into a mob. Would you explain that a little bit? I want to quote from, there's Jung quoting himself, <laughs> uh, paragraph 463 in volume 10. Jung quotes the Terry Lectures, which he gives at Yale in 1937. 37 was a big year for him. He got, uh, he saw Hitler and he got an honorary doctorate at Yale. I mean, God, what a year. Anyway, he says, but if people crowd together and form a mob, then the dynamism of the collected man, dynamisms of the collected man are let loose. Beasts or demons that lie dormant in every person until he's part of a mob. Man in the mass sinks unconsciously to an inferior moral and intellectual level, to that level which is always there below the threshold of consciousness, ready to break forth as soon as it is activated by the formation of a mass or mob, end quote. So that Jung says, you know, we're living constantly on the edge of a volcano. Mm. Okay, and when we have an outburst like this, you know, it can destroy everything, you know, everything inside. You know, 
it's certainly a good thing to preach reason and common sense, but what if you have a lunatic asylum for an audience or a crowd in a collective frenzy? There's not much difference between them because the madman and the mob are both moved by impersonal, overwhelming forces. So, you know, it, it's like, oh, la, 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 I'm a Jungian, da, da, da. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't really read that, but it's not. It's not doom and gloom either, okay? Yeah. It's just saying, all right, I've got a shadow. America has a collective shadow. Yes. Oh, we're all, you know, frontiers people. We're moving out in our covered wagons into, you know, a global understanding of ourselves. Oh, I see. So it's really Little House on the Prairie? Is that what you're trying to sell? Well, yeah, kind of. Well, you're deluding yourself. Mm-hmm. You're deluding yourself. Oh, here's at the the end. He has a paragraph 485. The struggle between light and darkness has broken out everywhere. The rift runs through the whole globe, and the fire that set Germany ablaze is smoldering and glowing wherever we look. The conflagration that broke out in Germany was the outcome of psychic conditions that are universal. The real danger signal is not the fiery sign that hung over Germany, but the unleashing of atomic energy, which has given the human race the power to annihilate itself completely. A situation is about the same as if a small boy of six had been given a bag of dynamite for a birthday present. We're not 100% convinced by his assurances that no calamity will happen. Will man be able to give up toying with the idea of another war? Can we at last get into our heads that any government impassion of impassioned patriots of Siegfrieds with signs okay of mobilization should be executed immediately in other words the uh, kill the mob mm -hmm. kill the mob mentality don't let it happen okay it's time high time that civilized man turned his mind to fundamental things. It is now a question of existence or non-existence. Ta-da! So, you know, you look at this and say, well, he's a goof. I mean, come on. You don't have to worry about Trump. He's a goof, and he's not going to be nominated. You know, today... Yeah. It's the 27th of April. He's creeping ever closer. Yeah. And there are a lot of people angry, and they don't know what the hell they're angry about, except that they can't go on that big vacation, you know, or, you know, we're not going to have scallops tonight for dinner because they mm -hmm. cost too much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else you're angry about? Mm. Well, I'm angry 
because it's we've lost Camelot. Yeah. You know what? We never had Camelot. Yeah. It was <laughs> it was a great, great image. It was wonderful. It was an act of genius. We're here. Jackie is showing us through the White House. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Jackie Kennedy goes to France, speaks to the French in French, and they all want to become the 52nd state. I mean, that, this is Camelot. This is wonderful. Mm -hmm. They're enchanted by her and him. By a beautiful couple. Ah. And then he gets shot. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that is, it's more than the man. It is the Trump phenomenon. Now, they asked me, you know, at the, at the Young Center, you were there, uh, is it, you want the Trump phenomenon, right? You're going to hear talk about Trump. No, I'm not going to talk about Trump. I'm <laughs> I talk about Trump a little, but I mean, he is, he is, well, he is what, you know, my friend, Dr. Bob Magrisso, called an opportunistic infection. Opportunistic infection happens when you've got a sick, dysfunctional body for a long time. And then what happens, every physician knows, I'm quoting Bob, every physician knows that when the body is weakened by disease, very often the final terminal illness is an opportunistic infection. The immune system, which protects against a myriad of bacteria and viruses and fungi to which we are routinely exposed and can easily fight off is weak. And so what happens is we get an opportunistic infection which basically is pointing to the fact that there is a deeper illness. Okay? And so people die of pneumonia rather than lung cancer. They're in the lung cancer ward. Mm -hmm. But they don't die of lung cancer. They die of pneumonia. Why? The immune system is weak. Okay? And so what my friend is saying is that Donald Trump is the pneumonia that is pointing to the fact that our whole body politic is diseased. I see. So that, you know, that is very big stuff. So it's sort of natural then that Trump showed up on the scene. Yeah. If it's not he, then it's someone else because the the state of the body is, is loaded with cancer. So if it's not going to be pneumonia, you know, it might be um, a scab on the the stomach or the forearm. All right, there you are. If it's not Donald Trump, it's somebody else. Right. But we've got to point to the fact that in addition to this, and, and this is where I, I ended the lecture, that in addition to this reality, 
people are dreaming dreams of hope. Yes. And so it's Max Zeller's dream in his book called The Dream, colon, The Vision of the Night. And he says, a temple of vast dimensions was being built as far as the eye could see, ahead, behind, right, and left. There were incredible numbers of people building on gigantic pillars. I, too, was building on a pillar. The whole building was in process of its first beginnings, but the foundation was already there. The rest of the building was starting to go up, and I and many others were working on it. That's the dream. And he gives the dream to Jung. I'll cut the long story that goes mm -hmm. with it. He gives the dream to Jung. And Jung says, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the temple we all build upon. We don't know the people because, believe me, they build in China and India and in Russia all over the world. That is the new religion. Do you know how long it will take until it's built? And Zeller says, how should I know? Mm -hmm. Do you know? Jung says, I know. I said, how long will it take? Jung says, about 600 years. Where do you know this from, says Zeller? He said, from dreams, other people's dreams and from my own. This new religion will come together as far as we can see. And then I could say goodbye. There was the answer to my question, what are we as analysts, what we as analysts are doing? And this is a guy who'd been interned in uh, Auschwitz for a little while and was able to get out. Zeller, and, you mean? Zeller. Uh -huh. was able to uh, get him out and help him anyway. And uh, he got to Los Angeles and then in 1946, he goes back to Zurich saying, what, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. You know, the whole world was on fire, and I'm seeing a patient who's got family problems, and somebody else has marital problems, and somebody, and the whole goddamn world's on fire, and here I'm in a cubbyhole in L.A. seeing one patient after another. What am I doing? Does this you know, analysis make any difference at all in terms of what we're facing? Then he has the dream. He forgets to tell Jung when they meet. He writes the dream on a scrap of paper, puts it into express mail. Jung reads it the next morning and says, pack your bags, my chauffeur's on the way to pick you up, we've got to talk about your dream. Mm. And you'll still make the 12 o'clock boat train to La Havre, wherever he was going. But, I mean, these are very big realities, and we have to own them. Yeah. You know, and not say, well, you know, you've got this sh power shadow. Oh, and if you take care of it and take humble pills, you'll be okay. That is stupid. Okay. I know. We all have a shadow. Personal? Yep. Okay. Got that. There's a collective shadow. Get those boots on the ground. And once our boots are on the ground, everything will be peaceful again. You know, and I mean, it's the, what does the word Siegfried mean? Uh, 
Siegfried is a part is two words. Sig means victory, and Fried, Frieden, peace. Mm-hmm. Siegfried, you have to have a, a war, and that'll bring about peace and order. You know, in the German psyche, just you know, you got to have order. Got to put mm-hmm. things in order. Once things are in order, then things will be okay. Oh, all right. And so, you know, you just look at our reality and you have to go back again to to the poem that we started with, The Cure at Troy. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Mm -hmm. Believe in magic. Believe in the unconscious. Believe that we can move beyond 9-11 9-11 revenge. Yes. Get those boots on the ground. We're going to kick ass. You'll be sorry, you guys. Oh, is that what we're doing? Because if we're doing, then we, we continue the lose-lose vicious circle. Can't do it. Can't do it. Mm-mm. But I think looking at, at Trump as an, uh, you know, as an opportunistic infection is saying a lot about our culture. You know, I hope that Trump himself gets rid of his pneumonia, but, you know, here we are. And so what do we do? We work on our pillar. Work on our pillar. Own our own shadow. The more I know myself, my shadow, the less I'm going to see it in you. And the less I have to act it out myself. Ah, right. So there's less projection. But there's less also inner identification. You know, I may keep projecting uh, pervert on you. And as long as I'm projecting that on you, the pervert in me can grow. Mm. Can grow. Wow. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So I think, you know, Jung still uh, has a lot, these many years later, to just go back to his works like volume 10, you know, and read what he wrote before and after the war. Mm-hmm. You know? You and I were talking a little bit before... We started recording today, and I was telling you, you know, you were asking me, why did I start this podcast? And I said, because people are out there coming up with these new methodologies and these new techniques, and we we still haven't comprehended what Jung said, and that most of his work hasn't even been published yet. And there is a wealth of knowledge and information in in the work that this man did, he he lived a long life, and it was filled with research and dealing with his own self and and the psyches of others. And um, there's so much to be gained by it, and we've just sort of brushed past it. And that's why I enjoy speaking with people like you, and why I want you to share what you know with all of us. And I really appreciate you doing that with us, Doctor Lavin. Oh, you're very, very welcome, Laura. I think it'll probably be the 22nd century Mm -hmm. where Jung will be 
really appreciate it. Really? You know, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to happen in our time. And the reason is that we are, we, we don't want surgery, we want band aids. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, it's quick, the quick young, you know, or you don't have to read memories, dreams, and reflections slowly and wonder about it. You know, you just do these, you know, three, you got the shadow thing. Okay, I've got that cognitively. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, now that you've got it cognitively, you've got it. You haven't come close. What's your experience? Mm. You know, I mean, the other day, yesterday, it was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think it was Sunday. I sat in our backyard, and I just looked, you know, and it was so beautiful. You know, the Persithia were out. We have a magnolia tree, and the magnolia was out. And again, the different, you know, things. And I just thought, oh, why? wasn't I here last year? Or why wasn't I here the year before, you know? Uh, well, I just wasn't. Well, you should have been. Yeah, I guess I should have been. But, there, you know, there, I think there comes a time when we're really ready to experience numinosity. Mm. Yeah. Well... Then you've got to wait for magnolias. No, it, it can be a snowstorm, for that matter, you know. But it's just the openness to the spirit of the time. And I think that's essential to you. You know, stand there and experience this guy looking in your eyes. And you look in his eyes. Oh, that's scary. Or it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, I thought, oh, this is too. And I thought of Gerard Bailey Hopkins' poem, you know, on the grandeur of God. You know, and it just like, ah, it takes your breath away. And for us to say, okay, you know, I have to give myself space for moments of breath-stealing. <laughs> I have to let it happen. You know, because, you know, I'll be long dead and I will have missed some of the most beautiful things of life because I was too busy doing the five Jungian things, whatever the hell they are. Doing the what? The five Jungian things. You know, in other words, I'm just trying to catch up with life rather than sitting down and saying, oh, my God, look at this. Yeah. How could I have missed this moment? How could I have missed what some people, you know, religious writers call the sacrament of the moment? To really be present. And that's, you know, that's a wonderful gift. Does, is that going to, is Jung going to be appreciated in the 21st century? Probably not. 22nd, yeah, probably. 
you know, am I going to understand the voice of myself, the terror and the tenderness? Probably not at all. But I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get as much as I can before I die. Yeah. The second uh, lecture on the 22nd, I finished in a way that I didn't uh, on April Fool's Day. Okay. Uh, I finished with uh, number 41 of the Tao Te Ching. And in number 41 of the Tao Te Ching, it says, you know, here are the fears of humankind. I'm paraphrasing, but here are the fears of humankind. You're going to be alone. You're not going to have enough. You can't let go. And you're going to die. The Tao says, you'll never be alone. You'll always have enough. You can let go. And dying is like coming home. And so have a good trip home. Thank you. And that's it. You're welcome. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Tom Lavin, for agreeing to be recorded for this podcast. I really appreciate his generosity. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information about the books and articles that were mentioned, as well as links to Dr. Lavin's upcoming presentations. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Google Play Music. Special thanks to Dr. Mary Ellen O'Hare-Lavin, Jessica Hart, and Caitlin Whitebread. With gratitude to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>